If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is the brilliant Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, it's great to see you as always. Good to see you. Also returning to politicology and making his roundup debut is George Conway. George is a conservative attorney, my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, whose pontifications, quips, and corgis can be frequently found in a number of outlets, most often on Twitter. George, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Welcome back. On this week's Roundup, the political fallout from the botched Afghanistan withdrawal, we'll talk about how Republicans are reacting and how public opinion has shifted in the last month. The nation's highest court let a historic bill restricting abortion access in Texas go into effect this week before weighing in Wednesday night with a 5-4 decision to let the law stand while legal battles continue. How so-called new Puritanism is upending liberal democracy. And we'll find out what stories the panel is watching And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll talk about the January 6th committee's latest records request and Republicans' threats against private companies that comply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's dig in. On our August 20th weekly roundup, we address the question of blame regarding our messy and chaotic and violent withdrawal from Afghanistan. And this week, we released a two-part conversation with national security experts Molly McHugh and Mark Palomaropoulos, where we took a deeper dive into how and why it all went wrong, a look back at the complexities of why we were there to begin with and what we achieved and what happens next. So with those substantive conversations in the background— it now feels appropriate to talk about the raw politics of this catastrophic last month for the Biden White House. So we've heard a few Republicans using words like impeachment and resignation, and it's easy to see how this entire episode produced a lot of fodder for Republican attacks against the president. But we've also seen an important shift in public opinion that 
could change how much political capital the White House has to spend in order to achieve its top priorities, whether or not this has any bearing on voter attitudes in next year's midterms. So the real clear politics average in early August had Biden's approval at roughly 51% with 43.5% disapproving of the job he's doing as president. And given the level of negative partisanship, an eight-point positive approval rating is pretty good. Fast forward to the end of August in the same average, and Biden's now underwater by two points, 47 approved, 49 disapproved, and 538 agrees with his approval at the lowest point in a post-war president's first term, aside from Bill Clinton, Gerald Ford, Donald Trump. So Lucy, I was thinking about this, and as you know, as people who are practiced at applied politics, I tend to think of top-line national approval ratings as sort of tactically useless generally. Because, you know, they make for a lot of hot air on cable news, but they don't indicate whether, you know, power is likely to shift as a result of elections until you drill down further. So, for example, uh, according to Reuters, uh, Reuters Ipsos polling data from August 26th, Biden is plus 31 with urban voters, dead even or around plus one with suburban voters, 21 points underwater with rural voters. And each of these figures has moved away from him in the last month. And you and I have talked a lot about the urban-rural split, and there's lots of threads to pull on there. but. Help us read between the lines a little bit. Um, how do you read the shift in public opinion vis-a-vis handling of Afghanistan withdrawal? How useful is that measure, if if at all? And how concerned should Democrats be about it? Well, August is just the toughest month of the year <laughs> across the board. Um, and I think that although Biden saw a little bit of a dip in August, I think that some of the indicators when you look at the crosstabs of his overall approval rating and how Americans feel about individual issues, I don't think he's in as bad of shape as one might think. In that poll you mentioned, he still has – Americans' confidence when it comes to the economy. He still has their confidence when it comes to things like handling coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of issues that are likely to determine future elections. One of the things that I think is kind of hasn't been discussed enough about the Afghanistan withdrawal numbers is that in that same poll, we see that although there is general disapproval of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there is approval for aspects of the withdrawal. For instance, resettlement of Afghans in the U.S. who Mm -hmm. helped uh, who helped Americans in the war on terror in this crazy multi-decade era. And that is the kind of individual issue when you think about sort of projecting out months and months and months. Those are the kinds of issues and realities that that do become determinative in local communities. Yeah. You know, how do people feel about having, you know, an influx of of Afghans? And it turns out they feel pretty good about it. Yeah. And so when you think about as we get – as the kind of wounds of and the distance grows from the actual withdrawal, which is so fresh right now, a a lot of the ways that those things are going to be showing up are things like how does it make people feel in their local communities? And we have every indication to suggest that they feel okay about it. I think any president was going to take a bit of a a dive just in – the Afghanistan withdrawal because for all the reasons that none of them ever did it because we were in an unwinnable war in a very tenuous situation. Yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, George, as a result of all this, Kevin McCarthy is now under increasing pressure, uh, from the vocal right side of his caucus to call for Biden 
to be impeached uh, because of the claim that this is, you know, evidence of his unfitness for office. That's what they're saying. Now, obviously, nothing of that sort would happen unless Republicans, until and unless Republicans take back the House in November. Um, But Politico notes that a lot of this pressure at its origin is grassroots from Republican voters who are angry and haven't stopped being angry since they were told the election was stolen and now want to see Biden removed from office. And so uh, we've seen McCarthy in this situation before, and he doesn't tend to, you know, he tends to bend. So, you know, after the House impeached Trump twice in two years, do you read this as inevitable that Republicans are going to try to do the same thing against Biden to settle political scores? Or how do you read the overall reaction from the right? I think the overall reaction of the right is if it wasn't going to be this, it would be something else. And I think the answer is going to be um, Senator McConnell, who says, ain't nobody going to get impeached. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ain't nobody going to get re- re- removed from office. And he thinks, um, quite rightly, it's yeah. a waste of time. And you know, I, I think the point that Lucy makes is absolutely right, which is any president would have taken a big hit yep. because – this was a government that was destined to collapse, whether it did so in a matter of days or a matter of months. It clearly did not have the wherewithal to survive. And anytime you have you know, basically a collapse of a government and you have groups of people who are fearful that the new revolutionaries are going to come in and do bad things to them, yeah. you're going to have a panic. That's what you saw – what we saw in 1975 um, in Vietnam and you know, with less – video available because people weren't carrying around smartphones, but there was still some remarkable video of the of helicopters lifting off from an apartment building that was used by American diplomats in Saigon and of you know, U.S. sailors on aircraft carriers pushing helicopters yeah. off flight decks to get more helicopters in to land. I mean, crazy stuff. But, you know, you were, it was, you're always going to have something like this. And that's why Trump never did it. And I, I don't – I'm here I am not going to be critical of Donald Trump. I have not been critical. I wasn't critical of Donald Trump when he signed the Doha Agreement even though I, there were aspects of it I think maybe I didn't like. But he had it essentially right, which is you know he had – he wanted to get out because he didn't see the point to it. He didn't think it was doing us any good and he was fundamentally right. Now, he didn't have the courage of his convictions. He wanted to, to push it. do it. He wanted to push it past the election and – Again, I mean, I don't, I'm not a fan of, of Pompeo, but it was, they did something very smart. They essentially cut a deal with the Taliban, say, you stay in place and we'll be out of your hair next year. Okay, as long as you just, you know, don't attack us, don't, you know, keep it, keep it at a low boil. And after the election, we'll, we'll be gone by May. And essentially, they kept to that deal. The best time, frankly, to get out would have been last winter. Mm-hmm. Right, the time to get out would have been. I'm sure you probably discussed this with your military type experts or your foreign policy experts. Would be to get out just as it's starting to get cold, which allows you some lead time because the the Taliban couldn't come down from the mountain in the winter, yeah. the mountains in the winter, and at least there you wouldn't have had an immediate collapse. Um, but here you were gonna, you know, you, there was no good way to do this. Now you, you should, perhaps I think the the government should have foreseen how quickly. Um, this government, the, the government in Afghanistan yeah. would collapse. I think they tried. I'm sure there were many elements in the government, at State Department and and, and the Defense Department, that convinced themselves that the, that this that the Afghanistan government could hold on for longer than it could because you know you've invested so much into it. But yeah, apart from that that significant mistake, the significant error, you were always going to have some level of chaos. And I think one of the sometimes you know there, there's a lot of 
times when public opinion, even if it's not fully well-informed, which it usually isn't, mm-hmm. where the, the instincts of the people are actually pretty good. And here on the left and right, people understood this, wasn't, this war wasn't doing us any good and we had to get out of it at some point. And that's the reason why I think at the end of the day, Biden won't be hurt by it, I think, uh, because what he did was broadly recognized as the right thing to do by the American people. They didn't want to be here yeah. and they didn't want to pay for it. And at the end of the day, he showed a lot of strength in just saying, okay, I'm not going to let all these attacks, I'm not going to let um, all of this keep me from doing what I said I'm going to do and yeah. what has been American policy for a couple of years now. Yeah. So your point about there's always going to be chaos in, in some fashion reminds me of an, the, an op-ed that Steve Israel just wrote in The Hill describing a conversation that he had, I think it was all the way back in 2008, when he was in Afghanistan talking to um, a member of the armed forces there who was, who was sort of um, shepherding a, a congressional delegation around. And he asked, you know, like, you know, should we even be here given that the, basically the person described a, a whack-a-mole situation where, um, you know, that is battling the Taliban and, and says like, they've been doing this for 200 years and they're going to be doing this for, and right. They're not leaving. And they're not leaving. They right, live exactly. there. Yeah. And their resolve is sort of far stronger than, right. than and ours. Because and so, they know yeah. we're not going to stay here forever. Right. right. So the other point you raised about public opinion, I wonder if I wonder what both of your thoughts are on this because it's come up a few times, especially when I'm talking to national security experts, and in particular Molly McHugh raises this repeatedly, and and it is the preference on both ends of the political spectrum now to be disengaged for an America that is disengaged from the world stage, and she calls this, um, she refers to this as sort of a pincer of isolationism, where on the on the right, we have developed this sentiment that it is not our job to intervene in other places, like it's not our responsibility. And in fact, that sometimes takes a more xenophobic tone, like right. the Taliban aren't, you know, the Afghanistans aren't ready. They're too primitive for American style, you know, democracy, right? And then on the far left, you have, not even the far left, but on the left, I think you have this growing sentiment of it's not our right to intervene. We have no right, we have no moral authority to impose uh, American uh, interests or values in other parts of the world. And so those two forces together for completely different reasons create this wave of public opinion that wants, that basically creates pressure for America to withdraw from the world stage. And I wonder what you think about, um, you know, George, your point about, you know, while ill-informed, oftentimes public opinion is, it also has the tendency of being right um, in aggregate. It's almost like the social psychology phenomenon where, you know, if you take a group of people who are looking at a jar of jelly bins and trying to, any individual one person will not guess the accurate number. But if you take an aggregation, an average of those guesses, it's usually very close to the actual number of jelly beans in the jar. I lay that at your feet. And if it makes any sense, do you think that this emerging trend of public opinion for a more uh, more withdrawn America from the world stage is, is right. Yeah, I, I don't know that the public opinion supports some kind of withdrawal from the world stage. I think it requires – my guess is, and I haven't studied the polling data, is that they want a more restrained view, but they don't – no one's calling for withdrawing American troops from Western Europe or Japan or, or Korea – or, I think you know, most taking don't know the, that we're there. Or taking, right, we're there, and and nobody seems to have ever 
have a big problem with it. The right. only person who had a problem with some of it was Trump. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, and nobody's saying, oh, we should just basically take the mothball the Navy and uh, let the Chinese have the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. I, n- nobody is saying that. Yeah. And nobody on either side of the political spectrum, and there's no clamor for it uh, in public opinion. So I don't think, I mean, I, I think it's wrong to suggest that withdrawing from Afghanistan and the sentiment in favor of withdrawing from Afghanistan presages isolationism. It didn't happen in 1975, although people were saying, oh, this is what's going to happen after the after, – I remember people saying that after the fall of Vietnam. It didn't happen. Um, and I think we have to defend our interests and I think Americans believe that we have to defend our interests around the world or we still have them. And I think – I mean the point that Biden is trying to make is a good one, that we do have interest and we have to focus on the big issues, which is – basically a global competition with the Chinese and to a lesser extent, Russians. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that this has laid bare is how much neoconservatism has gone out of style. And, Mm. you know, it's often hard to understand, even if you just look at the right, at at what forces were at play that sort of took someone like Liz Cheney sort of out of public favor among the Republican base and and why did this happen? And we've speculated a lot about what forces are at play. But it's often, I think I often tend to look at what's happening among the Republican brass as, well, this is mostly not about policy. But this has been a moment that really shows it it kind of is in in some circumstances. I think that you see someone like Adam Kinzinger spending a lot of time really pushing, like, we've got to stay the course, we've got to get back in there. And the response to that is crickets. Yeah. And no one wants that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the foreign yeah. policy blob, um, which <laughs> I, 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 I remember hearing that, that phrase a yeah. few years ago. Uh, I've become very uh, fond of it now. I mean, the blob is part of what led to Donald Trump. Yeah. Okay, the feeling that these people are out of touch, um, and you know, Trump being saying we are we are we are we are a country run by stupid people. Mm-hmm. What are we doing in Afghanistan? That had a lot of appeal uh, to yeah, people. It did. The fear, I think, is that we fall back into what I would what I kind of think are sort of some of our worst national impulses. And and even when you look at the poll numbers and of American support for Afghanistan withdrawal from the beginning of August to the end of August, you really see a shift of people souring on it. You know, especially I think after the loss of life of those 13 members of, of our military. And you even, you see how quick we are as a country to get back, to yeah. get our, Pairs yeah. up, yeah. you know. Even Joe Biden, in in his address after that loss of life, talked about how we have to get vengeance. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that something that is so fundamental to us culturally? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to go get vengeance? You know, to mm-hmm. this what is an awful episode, <laughs> but yeah. but it, those kinds of episodes make me think: Is there a bit of writing on the wall? for just inevitably falling back into this pattern of, you know, six months from now, 18 months from now, being back there. And if it's not Afghanistan, maybe it's somewhere else. The the notion, though, of striking back isn't what got us into trouble right here. That's true. I mean, if we had had simply stuck to— Good point. If we had stuck to—what they did in in Afghanistan, what the the CIA fundamentally did in Afghanistan in 
the fall winter of 2001, 2002 was quite remarkable. There basically was no serious ground deployment of American soldiers, maybe a few advisors, but mostly it consisted of CIA operatives helping to coordinate groups of tribes in the north, as I understand it, the north of Afghanistan who who were upset with the Taliban. And they basically toppled the government with – by leveraging off indigenous descent in in Afghanistan. And it was a remarkable achievement and that, you know, allowed – the, you know, for the projection of force against al-Qaeda. The problem was, you know, the terrain is such that you can't really right. root people out of their caves very easily. And if we had stuck to, okay, we, 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 we punished the Taliban for providing a home for um, al-Qaeda and focused on trying to find bin Laden, which we were doing, but – and didn't get into the whole idea that we need to create a demo- – a, 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 Western-style democracy in Afghanistan instead of letting the tribes work it out for themselves as they have been doing for centuries in essence, um, we would have accomplished our goal, which was to basically – to strike back um, and and, and not be – not allow this attack to go – without a, a significant response. And the irony is we, we, we did that and we never really dealt with the with part of the issue, which was Pakistan, mm. right? I mean, Al-Qaeda could not have been hiding out on those mountains without the help. And, and the yep. Taliban were yep. basically yep. supported by the, the ISI. The most the nominally pa- of the, U.S. The, the allies. The Pakistan, who we pay, right. uh, who we, we fund yeah. to I the tune that of, in like so many air hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars, a, I don't know, yeah. uh, a year or a decade. I don't know what yeah. the numbers are. And where was, where, where was Osama bin Laden hiding out? He turned out he was hiding, hiding out. Um, in a Badabad, Pakistan, a few hundred yards yep. away from the Pakistan Military Academy. Yep. That's where he ultimately was, not in Afghanistan. Yep. So, you know, the whole enterprise of trying to create, a, you know, a safe space in Afghanistan was not really a, a coherent, tailored response no. to what happened on September 11, 2001. Yeah. And it became, of course, enormously expensive in terms of blood and treasure. And the irony was, you know, we we, we struck back yeah. to overturning the tide. I mean, nobody was going to – could have doubted American resolve after we basically blew the yeah. Taliban out in 2001 and 2002. And at the same time, the mo- the biggest thing I, I, I think we did to protect ourselves from another 9-11 was – Something had nothing to do with defense. It was, you know, reinforcing the cockpit doors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and th- there are so many different things we can do to protect ourselves from terrorist attacks on our own soil that don't involve, you know, expensive foreign forays. That said, we need to, you know, be able to figure out where the bad guys are coming from and covertly at least do something about them. But we – I don't know that we helped ourselves by getting bogged down in trying to build a nation yeah. that we didn't know how to build. Let's leave it there. This past Wednesday, the Supreme Court denied a request to stop a new Texas law that bans abortions at six weeks from going into effect in a 5-4 decision. This is the first six-week abortion ban that has been allowed to go into effect. 
Under the new law in the state of Texas, abortion is prohibited when a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is often before a woman knows she is pregnant. There is an exemption in the case of medical emergencies, but no exception for rape or incest. This law is unique in that it emboldens private citizens to enforce it by way of suing abortion providers or anyone who assists a woman in terminating her pregnancy after six weeks, with a potential payoff of a $10,000 bounty plus attorney's fees, which notably are not recoverable for anyone sued under this statute, even if they win. And as if on cue, I noticed this morning there's already an anonymous tip line website put up by anti-abortion activists asking people for leads uh, for people that they can sue. So George, with so much to get to here, I'm just going to turn it over to you to talk through the legal mechanics, first of all, the reasoning behind the enforcement structure in the Texas law. What do people need to understand about what's happening outside of all of the very loud noise that is happening, probably for good reason, uh, there there is significant panic happening now all across the internet, all, you know, everywhere you look. And so- Uh, What do people need to understand about what's actually happening here? What happened in the Supreme Court decision? Why is this law different procedurally? And what really matters? Well, I mean, it's an insane law procedurally. (laughs) Clever in a a very devious way. Okay. Um, At the same time, you know, people who are saying that this law represents the death of Roe, I think – they're wrong and they're misguided. Okay. And to explain this kind of takes some explaining. I don't know that it will make people happy. It's one of the reasons why I don't like talking about abortion because the people who yeah. are pro-choice think you're pro-life and the people who are pro-life think you're pro-choice. Yeah. And any nuance kind of gets thrown to the to the wind. And I tried to explain this to this morning to someone and, <laughs> and, and she basically said, this sounds like uh, you're – these are instructions to uh, putting together a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> but um, well, I think it's here, important. I think it's important to understand okay, what's so what they yeah. did here. What, what the way that most abortion restrictions that turn out to be illegal under whatever iteration of Roe and Casey exists at a given moment, which has changed over time, is usually someone brings, like usually an abortion pr- provider brings a federal lawsuit against a state enforcement authority like a district attorney or uh, an attorney general who is charged with enforcing the state's abortion laws. And the claim is, you court should give me an injunction against this guy who is charged with enforcing this law, which contravenes the Supreme Court's decision in X decision, in X case. This this individual person. This public official. Okay. And what happens is if you convince the court whether the district court or the court of appeals or the Supreme Court, that in fact this is contrary to Supreme Court precedent and contrary to the undue burden standard of Casey against Planned Parenthood in the 1992 case, you get an injunction that says the state, this state official cannot enforce that law. So what they did here to get around that broad ability to get enjoined – They being the Texas legislature. The Texas legislature is they said, OK, we're not going – this law – which purports to ban abortion after, what, six weeks it was, Mm -hmm. is not enforceable by state officials. It's enforceable by 
people, anybody, anybody, and you we will give you basically it's like a it's like it's a bounty system. It's yeah. kind of like the Ketam system that's used the crowdsourcing. It, yeah, it's, it's kind of like what's used to, to <laughs> really. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are there are federal statutes that say if you if if the government is wasting money somehow, you can sue and recover part of that as a private citizen. And the problem with that is. Now, when the law went into effect the other day, it's not clear who you sue, all right? If to get an injunction, it's just federal courts 101, okay? Yeah. Every federal law student, law student, every law student learns this, is required to learn this. Under Article Three of the Constitution, you have to have a live case or controversy between a plaintiff and a defendant where the defendant is doing something or threatening to do something that would harm the plaintiff and the plaintiff has a right to stop it right. or right to get damages against it. Right. Um, and in order to get an injunction, it's the same thing. You have to order – you can only get an injunction if somebody is about to do something that harms you and you can identify that somebody and you can identify the something that they shouldn't be doing that harms you. Mm. The problem here is who is that person? It yeah. do, they don't – we don't know who they are because they can't – they haven't sued yet. They right. haven't identified themselves yet. And so you don't necessarily – you don't get an injunction immediately. And that's why everybody's like, oh my gosh, this law just went into effect. Well, the problem, the, the counter argument is, well, it kind of went into effect, but there's no, we don't know how it's going to be enforced or whether it's going to be enforced. And under sort of fundamental principles of what courts have jurisdiction to do, it's not clear that you can enjoin anybody for it. Hmm. So that's the problem they created. And that's what happened last night with the Supreme Court's decision. It says, yeah. This has real problems under our abortion jurisprudence, but it's not clear they can get relief at this stage. Now, that doesn't mean – and here's where people are making a mis one of their mistakes. Okay. It doesn't mean that the law, the constitutional rule gets – doesn't get enforced. It just means it gets enforced later in some different way. When somebody actually brings one of these private suits, then you can go and sue them and say they don't have the right to do that. And maybe this group that just set up an anonymous tip site could be sued. Mm. And enjoined from bringing these lawsuits on the theory that they are the people you can sue, and then you'd have a concrete case, and then you'd get an injunction against them. Or if somebody actually brings a lawsuit, you could get an injunction against them, and then you could create some precedent that says this is un unconstitutional. Right. Um, anyway, that's but that's sort of a the technical aspect of why the Supreme Court did what it did last night, and I don't fault it for doing what it did last night. And it made clear, and people are, for, are, are admitting to mention this in a lot of the discussion today, they said, we are not passing judgment. We are not saying that this law isn't unconstitutional. Okay. We, are, we are not dealing with the merits here. We're just dealing okay. with the technical aspects of whether or not you can, you can get an injunction in this case at this time. Now, the broader point I think that's worth making about this case and this law is that the other hot take is this is this is just they just overrule Roe. Right. They right. just overrule. And that, that's just again, they didn't say they were doing that, and they didn't do that. And the truth be told, this case isn't the case that matters. Okay. Um, and I know that that's that's people are gonna say, oh my God, but it's it's restricting abortions in 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 effect of, has the effect of restricting abortions in Texas. And that's true, but the reason why it has that effect is because of the other case that's got up before the Supreme Court that's going up for plenary argument, um, the Mississippi case. Okay, so tell me. And, and yeah. here's, here's the reason why. Again, this, this is the vacuum, explaining the vacuum cleaner instructions. No, no, this here. is actually really and useful for to, me. Uh, yeah. 
if there were no chance of Roe being overruled, then this whole Texas, crazy Texas statutory scheme, this Rube Goldberg enforcement mechanism (laughs) would not have any effect, any practical effect. Because if you're an abortion provider and you know the Supreme Court's not going to overrule Roe, you can take the risk of getting sued by these people because you can invoke Roe as a defense under current precedent. And you can say, I I shouldn't have to pay – the ten thousand. I'm not going to. This is illegal, and they, they, you would win your case, and pretty soon people would stop bringing these lawsuits. Okay. Um, the problem is the reason why you would fear liability today if you were an abortion provider in Texas is because well, what if the Supreme Court next year overrules Roe? If it does do that, if it did a full blown overruling of Roe that permitted um, abortions um, to be prohibited. Um, after six weeks, well, then you're potentially liable. And that's the reason why this law has the effect. So the point I'm making is if Roe were not overruled, this law would have no effect. If Roe is overruled, that's where the problem is and you'd be be doing something that's illegal anyway. So under under the law. And so the problem is if you're, I I think that the case that is dangerous to Roe yeah. is the Mississippi case, not this not one. Not this one. Okay. Okay. And 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 what the Texas legislature did, and I think it's part of the devious nature of what it did, was it was taking advantage of that legal uncertainty. Uh, All right. Okay. That's that's sort of my take on it. Okay. That. I mean, so, I got a lot of takes on, on I, no, this, no, no, and it this doesn't is, make people happy. No, but it well, it's 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 important. You're explaining something in the type of detail that never gets treatment. Right. It doesn't in, because, it, it, because you, we, we, that, that's sort of the problem. It is part with, of the problem. With, with the discussion yeah. about abortion in this country is that it gets oversimplified and over bumper stickerized, bumper stickerized yeah. on every side, every which way. And it's sort of impossible to express a thoughtful view without somebody saying, you are for killing babies or you are for coat hangers. And it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's just, it's sort of a problem we have that's particularly prevalent in this fraught okay. area, but it's so extending to other aspects of our political life. Just one, one follow-up to the, to the effect of this, this law going into effect. You right. said it's kind of goes into effect because we don't know exactly who would be, uh, who you could see conjunctive relief against, right? No, it's not who or, you, yes, yes, correct. Right. I mean, it kind of goes into effect because you have this law right. that says, you know, but this is illegal. So is it, is it true to say then that the rights protected in row are nullified by this law in Texas in practice, at least right now? I think that it's not that they are nullified at this moment. The problem is, I think if you were an abortion provider, what you would say, and I think they're right, is that you are chilled Hmm. from exercising your constitutional right to um, provide abortions to women um, or you're, 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 you have that right that's derivative of a woman's right, to, right. To, 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 to choose an abortion. And that's what the effect of this law is On the and was intended right now, to be. Like today, as we're Correct. As I mean, we're that's taping, right. Because if I do what I normally do on every, every day of the week, I did last week, yeah. I, I run the risk of being sued by 50 people and held liable and basically put out of business. Yeah, right. Okay. So, and that's a, you know, that's a legitimate – that's a legitimate – 
So, so in reality, like you can't get an abortion in Texas right now because of this chilling effect. Correct. Right. Or that's what they're, that's what they're saying. I mean, maybe, and, maybe they're, I don't know. And I mean, there are doctors who are affiliated with say Planned Parenthood clinics in Texas who have said they feel that they must follow new yeah. guidelines based on this law. Right. Right. So, so but they it, don't want to be, they, they don't, you know, they, the law says that. And so in effect right now, regardless of how, you know, while, while, while they may not have explicitly overturned Roe, they have explicitly allowed a law to go into effect that prevents in practice right now, while this Mississippi law is, is pending anyway, uh, um, prevents a woman from being able to terminate a pregnancy after six weeks. Like that is what's happening as a result of this right. law in practice. Okay. So I want to talk about the dissents for a minute because I think – because they're because they're different, right? So Chief Justice Roberts writes about this in his dissent about the, the procedural uniqueness, right? He said uh, the courts need to consider whether states are able to avoid responsibility uh, for their own laws. Can states essentially crowdsource law enforcement to citizens? And in her dissent, Justice Sotomayor – wrote that the Texas law was written to evade judicial scrutiny precisely because of the enforcement mechanism. What are the dangers we'll face if we see other laws that crowdforce enforcement? Do you think that part of the, you know, especially when constitutionality is going to be challenged uh, on crowdsourcing enforcement in that way? Well, again, I think the problem is unique to this circumstance. Okay. If you, I mean, somebody was saying, uh, somebody, somebody was saying online, well, you you wouldn't like it, Mister Conservative, if if they did this with guns, right? This okay. is the question, this right? The question. Could this possibly be a blueprint for well, you act, unconstitutional laws? Well, you couldn't do it with guns until they work through the court. Well, you couldn't do it with if this is an attempt. Obviously, Sotomayor is right to avoid constant an injunction against a, a a prohibition, a state prohibition that's unconstitutional. She's right there, and 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 Roberts is right. I think the question is. Would that have any chance of having that effect in some other context where the law were similarly decided and not, but not subject or likely to be overruled? Mm. Because in that other circumstance, let's say um, you could sue all gun owners for um, owning a gun. Yeah. Okay. The answer would be you wouldn't be able to collect damages there because the second amendment under under Heller and 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 the the Chicago case right. prevent you know gives you the right to own a gun so the difference is that Roe might be overruled okay that's the reason why that's the point i'm making earlier that's the reason why this crazy nutball enforcement mechanism attempts to avoid injunctions actually can have an effect is because of the uncertainty that has cropped up regarding Roe. Got it. Okay. So I imagine a lot of our listeners are not feeling very comfortable about this, uh, about the, about the, the takeaway so far. Um, so Lucy abortion is Frequently a top issue for single issue voters. Um, how would a paired back row affect turnout on either side, do you think? And could this be an electoral boon for Democrats? Um, and in just in general, how are you thinking about 
this development. Thanks for saying that. (laughs) Because, you know, George mentions that this is one of our sort of many ongoing national discussions that has no nuance. Um, And so I know that emotions run high when talking about this issue. So, you know, what I'm suggesting here are really just political realities of the situation, which is that this is a massive boon for Democrats. And I would say that in general, we often conflate how people identify whether they're pro-life or pro-choice with how they feel about a woman's right to an abortion and how they feel about Roe. So I revisited this week the, you know, Gallup keeps data. They basically asked the same question. They've done it for decades, right? And I looked at Americans' opinions on abortion in the last 30 years. And whether or not a majority of Americans report being pro-life or pro-choice, this may not be what people want to hear, but that changes all the time. Mm. I mean, it's still it's still shifting. You have times where people are, I mean, in the last 10 years, you've had this, where people report mostly being pro-life, then they mostly report being pro-choice. I, I think that context, like what's going on in state legislatures, what's going on with heartbeat, fetal heartbeat bills has a big impact. But something that has not changed is Americans' support for Roe v. Wade. And I mm. was really interested this week in revisiting how Americans feel to see that support for overturning Roe v. Wade in the last 30 years, in the last three decades, has never topped 36%. Roe v. Wade wow. is overwhelmingly popular with Americans. And so what does that tell me? Well, what should it tell us? I think one of the things it might tell us is that people are much more likely to be motivated to go out and vote in a certain way because they want to protect a woman's right to choose than they are the opposite. I mean, so when you think about, okay, who are people who want to see Roe overturned? Mm. And it's kind of hard to get good crosstabs on this, crosstabs being like, who are these people who say this thing? But I would imagine that that group is pretty locked in, right? Like conservative Christians, evangelicals, that their opinion about abortion is pretty part and parcel with whom they vote for. Whereas then you think about other audiences of people, other blocks of voters, like suburban women who might find themselves in a lot of elections voting for a pro-life Republican. Right. You know, that's not my phrase. It's just our useful shorthand. But making a different choice because it is an issue that can be really motivating as a single issue for folks. And so when you then also look at a state like Texas that is going through a big demographic shift, this is a massive boon for Texas Democrats. And, And I think that you'll see that in a lot of places. And another thing that I think is really important to think about, and, you know, I'm not the lawyer here, George is, but- And I know I bring this up a lot and no one loves it as much as I do. But if we just revisit our sense of federalism, if Roe v. Wade were overturned, which I know for a lot of people is a nightmare scenario, that does not mean that 
women in Massachusetts are not still able to get abortions. I'm I'm not commenting right now at all on the challenges or logistics of women in, you know, the economic challenges, taking right. off work, being able to travel. Of, I'm, I'm not right. taking away from that at all. What I mean to say is if you then see that piece of federalism in action, and again, projecting out the scenario in which, you know, the sky falls, row is overturned, you are then going to see a massive, massive mobilization of pro-choice groups working to to ensure abortion rights in yeah. every state. And it's going to become this massive motivating factor. And so while I know that this is kind of like a pet issue of a certain sector of the right, I think that one of the worst things politically that could happen for Republicans and for social conservatives would be to have Roe v. Wade overturned because they're then on defense. And I think that the the kind of the massive wave of support for access to safe, easily accessible abortions would be unbelievable. So not commenting on individual women's individual experiences, but I think this is a massive boon for Democrats any way you slice it. So you bring up a really interesting point, which I think we may have talked about before, but I think it is true that on the right, abortion tends to generate a lot of heat, a lot of intensity, but very little effect in terms of turnout. Right. And so basically what you're arguing is that the that, that it will have the opposite effect on the Democratic side because of essentially loss aversion. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're saying that in that it's in states that actually are in play or becoming more in play. Right. Okay. I wanted to do something a little bit different for our final roundup segment this week. Uh, and instead of a news story, I wanted to center a discussion on – a piece that uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Anne Applebaum, who we are all very familiar with, uh, wrote in The Atlantic for their October issue because it ties together so many of the threads that we pull on uh, in this show regarding accountability and justice and redemption and the lack of a mechanism for redemption in the internet uh, era. Titled The New Puritans and writes, Right here in America, right now, it is possible to meet people who have lost everything jobs, money, friends, colleagues, after violating no laws, and sometimes no workplace rules either. Instead, they have broken or are accused of having broken social codes having to do with race, sex, personal behavior, or even acceptable humor, which may not have existed five years ago or maybe five months ago. Some have made egregious errors of judgment. Some have done nothing at all. It is not always easy to tell. Nuance and ambiguity are essential to the rule of law. We have courts, juries, judges, and witnesses precisely so that the state can learn whether a crime has been committed before it administers punishment. We have a presumption of innocence for the accused. We have a right to self-defense. We have a statute of limitations. By contrast, modern online public sphere, a place of rapid conclusions, rigid ideological prisms, and arguments of 280 characters, favors neither nuance nor ambiguity. Yet the values of that online sphere— have come to dominate many American cultural institutions, universities, newspapers, foundations, museums. Heeding public demands for rapid retribution, they sometimes impose the equivalent of lifetime scarlet letters on people who have not been accused of anything remotely resembling a crime. Instead of courts, they use secretive bureaucracies. Instead of hearing evidence and witnesses, they make judgments behind closed doors. Now, Anne uses a number of vignettes to illustrate that although in the U.S. there is no state coercion generally against speech, 
Um, fear of the internet mob, the office mob, or the peer group mob is effectively stifling intellectual free exchange of ideas. And worse, decisions affecting the livelihoods of individuals are made without due process and without mercy. There is no criminal charge or jury, and there is no examination of evidence. But people who've had their lives, but people who've, who've had their lives turned upside down by, you know, quote unquote, the mob, frequently professors and journalists often can't continue to function in their professional or, uh, or even their personal lives. So George, you first, a lot of, a lot, a lot of Anne's piece actually focuses on what happens after the mob goes after someone, um, you know, the decisions made by administrators or boards that become terrified of, uh, you know, when they, when they become the target target of anger and hysterics, um, what Anne calls the illiberal bureaucracy. How do we empower individuals, um, ourselves to defend from, you know, the mob and from knee-jerk responses by decision makers? And just more broadly, how are you thinking about this emerging illiberalism? Well, I, I think she's right. I don't think it's quite – I don't think it emerged just in the last few years. I no. think it's been emerging for decades and – I think the only answer is more nuance, okay? Mm-hmm. More nuance yeah. and more thoughtfulness. <laughs> if only. If only. And I, you know, I don't know whether that's really possible in the current political and media environment that we have. But, you know, not all stupid statements or politically incorrect statements are created equal, mm-hmm. okay? There's a difference between, um, you know, People who just make a, a mistake or make a or say something infelicitously, and somebody who's saying something with real, um, I don't know, racist um, motivation. Mm-hmm. There's just a huge. There's just a huge spectrum of of things that some things I would think that you should be. Um, shit can for, if I may use that word on this podcast. <laughs> and there are some things where you should be able to say, oh, look, I, I didn't mean it that way and yeah. I, or on reflection. Okay, that's not right. But the problem is, yeah, people, there's, there's people panic. Yeah. Um, people in charge of these illiberal boards or institutions panic because it's not worth it to them to be the next person in line to right. be attacked. And I just think that we, you know, I, I just think that it requires more people to say, okay, I don't agree with what this person said. I think that what, what, what this person said was reprehensible, but it's not a firing offense. Yeah. Okay. And I think we need to have more people saying that and willing to say that um, without themselves feeling that they are fearing that they themselves are going to be next on the list. <laughs> right. And so I don't know, I don't know how you get there. Yeah. Um, because uh, it- with, with this cultural phenomenon, but you know, it's part of why, we have this political culture that's developed on the right yeah. where people say things precisely to offend the right. powers that's, that be. That's exactly right. You know, Why where the becomes and perfor- the, where, where you yeah. have this kind of performative idiocy. Um, and that, again, it makes it – again, that, that's doing nothing but making the political and cultural environment in the country even more toxic. Right. I agree. I don't think it is possible to have – more nuance. I just don't, I don't, the trend is not going that direction. No. I don't, they, they, you're not going to stop the the tide from rising. And so if that's true, if that's the case, then, then how We're do doomed. you, then are, are we actually doomed or is there some kind of, 
you know, are there some kind of protections that you could put in place? Maybe it's workplace, you know, reform. You know, maybe it's some kind of reform of workplace laws. I don't know. But I, I don't know that it, you it, can because it's like – because you have, there are First Amendment protections to firing somebody who says something stupid, right? You have the right yeah. to – you know, you have the right to not have me on my podcast if I say something that you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not have you on – me yeah. on your podcast. Yes. I, 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 Do you have a podcast? No, I Can I come on it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need any other podcasts. We have <laughs> all we need is psychology. Right. I, I think, I, yeah, I would, I'm very, very nervous about the idea that what we need to do to yeah. sort of figure out how to reform mob justice is, you know, to think about codifying new laws. And yeah. in fact, yeah, although I, sympathize with that. I really appreciate a couple of things that Ann Applebaum does in the piece. One was she very rightly highlights, she doesn't use the word cancel culture. Correct. She's very clear about that. And she rightly really exposes the fact that even though it's become this right-wing boogeyman, mm-hmm. uh, the stories of the people that she's highlighting are mostly not even on the right. Um, right. And, and I think that's really, really important because it actually reflects that the 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 people that um, this hurts are often moderates or people at the well, liberals. liberals. They're liberals, or actually. Liberals. Yes. Yeah, no, but, you, yeah. But, yeah. but in terms of whom it silences, right? I mean, it, when you look at last summer, yeah. there was um, a little bit of fallout, well, I guess a, a year ago. There was fallout about during, after the, during the sort of height of the post-George Floyd stuff and and um, uh, Black Lives Matter movement in that summer, there was a lot of fallout for a ton of reality show celebrities, right, who were like people on Bravo shows, right, who suddenly got thrown off their podcast feeds, punished, including by platforms like Apple Podcasts, right? There was a woman named Stassi Schroeder who was a Bravo celebrity, right, who basically had been found to have made some – kind of in poor taste comments and nothing that was really that appalling. And she lost all of her sponsorships, which of course the sponsors have the right to do that. She was fired from the Bravo show and she also was taken off of, I think Spotify and Apple. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that's fine for her sponsors. And of course these are all private actors, but some of these same companies are sponsoring podcasts and, or or publishing the feeds of people like Dan Bongino or <laughs> Rush Limbaugh. So, but it's just that in a way, those people on the right have found a way to insulate themselves because they're in this lane. And so the the kind of lack of ability, and this is really up to the audiences, but to apply these rules, yeah. whatever they are, evenly is a problem. Another thing, though, that I've really thought about in addition to whom this hurts when reading this piece, you know, I, I think that and, – and you set this up a little bit in, in the, the piece of the article that you you read, which is this idea that we really believe in due process and mm-hmm. the rule of law. I kind of reject that frame a little bit, and the reason is that – as a person who would like to have a kind of optimally small government and keep, well, let me rephrase that. As a person who would like to see government stay out of individuals' lives, I'm very much in favor of a society in which there are all kinds of penalties for improper Mm. actions and conduct that don't have anything to do with laws, right? I don't want to have a new law for every 
problem, right? I don't think that new laws are generally the best solution. So a, a culture in which there are repercussions that are extrajudicial, to me, that's optimal. But then mm. the question becomes, well, then you're you're kind of back at this question of like, well, what what are the consequences right. and who determines that? And it, it does go back to when, you know, Anne talks about how a, a person who was really harmed by this talked about three pools of people, an, an academic who'd been kind of forced out, an academic who'd been forced out talked about, you know, you suddenly have like the heroes, your colleagues who are standing yeah. by you, the people um, who are out to get you. And then the much larger group of people who just nice say but useless, nothing. Right. nice but useless, yeah. And and that's the that's the most concerning concerning group because that's where we really really are mm. out of step. Because the reality is, most Americans, if you ask them individually, they would say, uh, "I think the punishment didn't fit the crime," or yeah. or you know. But but the there are not pro, there are no there's no incentive to yeah. be out there. She says in the piece that the stated goal or like the, you know, maybe not the stated goal, but the goal tends to be to punish and purify. And it's this purification of what we think and what we're allowed to say that I think is kind of alarming for liberalism generally. That's the part of, that's the part of it that like rubs me the wrong way. That makes me, um, you know, fearful of where this heads. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the, the point Lucy made yeah. is that the, the people who are most affected by this yeah. are in liberal institutions are right. then are and they themselves are liberals right newsrooms yeah academic yeah. Ac- academia um those are the people who when you talk to them and you get them you know when they're not no one else is listening they'll tell you how terrible it is yeah and of course they would never go out and say that publicly the way Ann Applebaum did because that would subject them to attack by Right. The mob, right. you know, the people who are saying, "Look, that's you're just that's just you're showing your white privilege." Yeah. What something, some kind of attack like that. That if you say, "Well, you know, this person shouldn't have been fired for that," or the I, I have to worry about everything I say and do, even if I don't, I have to worry about being yeah. called a racist for yeah. doing things that just, but for just saying something that that it should be just ordinary at least or that should be just said oh if you disagree here's the here's the here are the five reasons i disagree yeah. and then the other point that lucy makes is just absolutely right it's like we can't the government can't regulate this no. stuff no yeah right because yeah, it's because because I, it's I think that's it's, right it's free speech yeah it's right. free speech within an institution it's yeah. it's you know institutions have the freedom to destroy themselves yeah. okay yeah. and and to basically decide that they don't want to associate with someone who said you know use the wrong word yeah. at the wrong time and and the the bigger challenge in some of this, I think, when when what Anne calls mob justice, when it goes too far, the the other audience of people, it really well, the other sector of people, it really really hurts are the sometimes truly aggrieved parties, right? People who are being sexually harassed or people who've been the subject of of something unfair who are the victims. Because if we, you know, we we have to find the equilibrium because we also there, yeah, some of this stuff trivializes yes, real problems, yeah. right? And we we yeah. want to we have to be able to say to figure out it's it's not even and I think in a lot of these cases whether or not someone should face some kind of punishment, but yeah. whether the punishment is life destroying right. when that is probably a little yeah. too much, you know, fundamentally whether the punishment that's 
the crime. Right. Well, and I think she gets at that. And that's, that's I think this is why she sets up this idea that, I mean, she highlights the idea that in in a liberal pluralistic society, we have due process. We have we have we have enshrined the idea of due process and the examination of evidence and that none of that happens. Um, so there is no way to tell whether or not the punishment fits the crime because there has been no assessment of whether or not what what is the crime precisely and and uh, and how do we gauge what the punishment ought to be. And how do we even assess whether or not there was a crime to begin with? And so, um, but I think there's, but I think there's an important electoral uh, piece of this to discuss because this is, I think, by by plenty of accounts, especially plenty of accounts on the left, a particularly problematic uh, phenomenon for Democrats. And James Carville even said this in April. I read this interview he gave to Vox, and he goes. We can't say Republicans are going to call us socialists no matter what, so let's just run out and out as socialists. That's not the smartest thing to do. And maybe, you know, tweeting, he's talking about, you know, the uh, abolish the police. Uh, maybe tweeting that we should abolish the police isn't the smartest thing to do because almost fucking no one wants to do that. <laughs> and he goes, here's the deal. No matter how you look at the map, the only way Democrats can hold power is to build on their coalition. And that will have to include more rural white voters from across the country. Democrats are never going to win a majority of these voters. That's the reality. But the difference between getting beat 80 to 20 and 72 to 28 is all the difference in the world. And so, um, and earlier in the interview, he says, quote, wokeness is a problem and we all know it. And he's talking about we Democrats. And so like, so, so I'm wondering if the political incentives for a, for, I don't know, an immunological response by the Democrats uh, among Democrats to try and contain this phenomenon might actually be the most sort of motivating, I don't know, some way of moving past the moment where we are now. Is that a crazy way to think about this? You know, I think there's a separation, and I'll defer to Lucy on this since she's the professional um, political Hack. consultant. <laughs> I think there's a there's a there's a distinction between the public discussion and understanding of these issues, and then the understanding of these issues among readers of the Atlantic sure. and people who work absolutely. At, uh, major universities George, as professors. everyone I know reads the Atlantic. I mean, what, I mean, what, I, what, I, what I mean is like the extent <laughs> to which this phenomenon has been <laughs> weaponized <laughs> by the right against the left. As, I don't you know, think people in, I don't know, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, yeah. I don't know, central Pennsylvania, yeah. wherever. Are not the, talking about this in this way. Are not concerned <laughs> about the political environment in the New York Times newsroom right. or at a Yale faculty meeting. Right. Um, Although, you know, those things do affect, they do kind of spread out to the sure. broader society. Because they change the um, way culture is created. Yeah, they're, cons- you know, they, 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 their people out there are concerned about the, you know, uh, about what people are saying about Dr. Seuss being banned. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's, a, there's just a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a connection, but a disconnection yeah. between the problems that Anne is describing, which are, rich people's problems. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the ordinary per Joe in the diner, Joe and Mary in the diner mm-hmm. who have Fox news on in the corner. Yeah. It's just a different, you're you know, so right. About you know, that. yes. I mean, you could call them both cancel culture, but it's a totally, it's a different thing. Yeah. It's a different thing that bears, has some similarities, but I don't think controlling what Anne is describing 
would have a political impact because it's just removed from the political life of ordinary Americans. Okay. Now that we're up to speed on three of the biggest stories of this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Um, Lucy, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I have been really interested in what's going on at the local level amidst redistricting, amidst you know, sort of the lead up to next mm-hmm. cycle. And there were two couple of things that came on my radar this week that I think all kind of fit in. One is that ProPublica published a big piece about what is, um, from a mechanics standpoint, happening at the local level, level in terms of people joining precinct committees, um, party apparatus sort of yeah. join up, recruitment, um, and also people taking taking an interest in uh, way, way, way down ticket races. And the from the people that brought you Donald Trump, Steve Bannon has <sighs> really, really worked hard to build huge, huge constituencies of people who are becoming local precinct committeemen, really, really sort of cementing the, let's call it Trumpian. I know we don't love that phrase, yeah. but the Trumpian hold on the party. And this has been consistent. Uh, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about as we think about how lines are going to be redrawn. Um, so I would encourage people to think about that. One of the things that I hear a lot from, and I talk a lot to so-called never Trump people, but also from the left is a big focus on federal races next year. Mm. And that's I understand why people are thinking about that, but I've been thinking a lot about how there are so many, so many governors races up, yep. so many secretaries of states races up, um, and local boards of elections, if it, like exactly. all, yeah. and there are so many Republican governors in office right now who I think would not be able to be elected today because they are not sufficiently proto-fascist, <laughs> let's say. And and so we're going to see a lot of those people being termed out of office, um, plus the combination of new lines being drawn for the for the yeah. non-statewide offices. And, and the ProPublica piece just really highlighted that this is a thing that Republicans are working very, very hard at. And I think that Democrats could sort of find themselves once again, not with the eye on the prize. Mm. Something that relates to this is something else that was written this week by Will Wilkinson about basically the southification oh, of I saw this. the rest of the country yeah. of, of rural America. Yeah. And and it's a good way to think about these things. And it reminds me a lot of stuff Mike Madrid has said yep. about how we're we're missing <laughs> we're missing the axes essentially. Yes. But but it, that thinking about that helped me to think about this other idea of what does the Republican machinery look like going into 2022. It was essentially this idea that that it rural America across the country is taking to your point about urban versus rural, but yes. it's taking on a kind of southern culture in a place like say rural Maine. Yep. Um, and I think that we we really need to just be looking at these things happening at the state and local level because I, I think it's really easy to overlook a lot of that. And to me that dovetailed with that that hundred percent. Hundred percent. George, what are you watching? What am I watching? I don't know. Handmaid's Tale? I don't know. What <laughs> no. stories are you watching? Oh, what stories am I watching? Okay. Or one story. I, I guess the, the the story, maybe I'm I'm just hooked onto last year's news or early this year's news is the January 6th oh, insurrection yeah. investigation. We're about to do that in the plus segment. And, oh, I didn't mean to, <laughs> I didn't mean to preempt it, but I think, I mean, one of the things I find interesting about what we do and don't know about January 6th 
is there have been these books that have come out and there were news stories at the time about how people were trying to tell the former guy, mm-hmm. you know, you got to go out there on TV. You got you to gotta say something. You got to mm-hmm. do this. You got to do that. This is a problem. It's bad. And they, you know, everybody and their mother was saying they tried to get through mm-hmm. and they had multiple phone calls or they admit to having multiple phone calls. Um, they're willing to say what generally what most of them are willing to say what they said, what they were urging, but they never say what the response was. Why did they have to keep calling? Hmm. Okay, there's a little – there are a few hints of that in the, in the in some of the reporting immediately after Jan 6th, January 6th, where the Washington Post said the guy was an absolute monster that day. But we one of the things we haven't been hearing, including in these remarkable books that have come out, mm-hmm. including the mm-hmm. Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker book, is totally. what was the response and why aren't they telling – so and the question is why aren't – why aren't we hearing what that response is? And that's what I think all this cover – part part of this cover-up is all about. Why McCarthy doesn't want to produce – great observation. Want, yeah. Doesn't want to produce um, – have, have and, and the Republicans don't want to produce phone records. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about what they knew about what was going on down the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and what they were told by others because there must have been a lot of gossip and hearsay about what – you know, did you get through? Did you get through? So, you know, I, I just think that's that good. there's there's mm-hmm. just so much there that we don't know about. And that's going to come out. And I think that's why it's motivating some of the the backlash um, among the Republicans. We are going to go to the after party in a minute and talk a little bit more about that precisely. But before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Lucy? Well, they can find me on Twitter at <laughs> Lucy M. Caldwell. And George. Same. Uh, well, not at Lucy Caldwell, but at Conway Third. And, um, you know, I do write columns from time to time for The Washington Post. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think more like a political strategist, to look further down the road than everybody else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's Plus segment and much more at politicology.com plus. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there, because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>